The reading is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on the gates. This is the word of the Lord. So, startling statistic. Your, group, your team has found that 64% of young adults with a Christian background have dropped out of church. Why? Uh, well, there are lots of different reasons, and one of the things we learned is that behind every survey is a story. So we've interviewed, as you said, uh, more than a million people. I, I feel tired just saying that number, yeah. <laughs> all the interviews yeah. that we've done. But, uh, you know, you hear be- behind the scenes of the, the lives that people live, the spiritual journeys that people take. Uh, but people mention things like uh, be- the church being overprotective, being anti-science, being judgmental, being hypocritical, uh, that the church was sheltered, it kept them away from the world. Uh, so a lot of our job as Christians is try to hear and understand those stories, the two out of three young people who walk away mm-hmm. from their faith. Because uh, the background of our secular culture is, uh, is, is the background for catechism today. We have to catechize our children so that they are not actually imbibing the culture, but rather are shaped by what the scripture says. Yeah, so uh, it's really great. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time because in my view, your content and the stuff that you do is really, really needful for parents. And I have parents who ask me questions and I feel, I feel ill-equipped to help them, to equip them to deal with especially younger kids. Like teenagers to me is a little easier. 16, 17 is a lot easier. You know, I can talk on their level a little more easily than if someone's like seven or six or five or something like that. And I feel like you cover all that really well. While parenting is one of the most difficult and mundane things we do, for that reason, it's also one of the most important and spiritual things we do. When I think about the responsibility that God has given uh, me uh, in in relationship to my children, the the primary one uh, is disciple maker. So we're sort of working against this idea that, um, yeah, I dropped my kids off and you all disciple them. Um, which is what we do with everything else as parents where we want our kids to grow, right? We, right. we kind of uh, delegate that to the professionals. Um, and yeah, the way that the Western church is kind of set up that really prioritizes the paid positions and the pastoral role in the, in the area of discipleship, that doesn't really help. But, but we changed it to be um, that every child in our ministry would encounter Jesus on a Sunday morning and that um, everything we would do on a Sunday morning would also serve to equip and empower parents. As a parent, you know, don't you, that you want your children to be raised in the church. We need to use our authority in a way that helps them practice living under the authority, not of us forever, but of the Lord Jesus. Write It On Their Hearts is a straightforward, practical book to help Christian parents disciple their kids. I think of Deuteronomy 6, and so the posture of parenting is that we teach our kids as we live life with them. Today we're going to discuss how do you do family worship, what is it, and how can you start it today at home? If all you needed 
was 10 insights to be able to be what you're supposed to be and to do what you're supposed to do with your children, Jesus would have never had to come. All right. Well, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? You know, I remember the looks on your faces when we started this journey about family discipleship. and You seemed timid and scared, didn't quite know what you were doing. But Sarah and I, as the family ministers here, are so enthusiastic. We feel it's an honor to be able to award you with this amazing certificate to say, you have done it. Not there? There we go. So you have done it. Congratulations. You are disciples now. Can you imagine it? It would seem so long ago when we started this journey together. It felt like mere moments, actually. And I think I can see in your faces right now, you think, what on earth is Matt going on about? We've just started this. I thought this was going for three weeks, and apparently I've already won. Well, actually, what happens is, see, if you're a Christian parent, you are automatically a disciple maker of your children. So you've got it now. That certificate, it was given to you by God the moment your children were born. And so our goal as parents is to uh, what? What is the question? What is your goal? Uh, So I want you to do a little exercise. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think about what is your ultimate hope or goal for your child or children, for maybe your grandchildren, maybe what is your goal for the next generation? What is your hope? What do you want them to be as they grow? Where do you want them to get to? We all, uh, when we have our kids, when we meet our grandkids, when we watch the kids wander around our church, we all have something we hope they grow into. The goal that we have for the end will ultimately play out in how we disciple. It will help us figure out exactly what it is that we do day to day because we have this end goal in mind. And so the goal that our society, the goal that um, often parents want for their children is for them to thrive. We want them to thrive as individuals. Uh, We want them to be good people. We want them to be happy. Uh, We want them to be successful, uh, to meet the goals that the world has for them. But actually, uh, that is not the goal that God sets for us. Uh, The goal that God gives us in his word is that uh, we will thrive, our children will thrive as followers of Jesus, uh, not as people of the world. This is something that, obviously, as parents, when you sort of feel the weight of this, can feel incredibly Mm. overwhelming. Where do you start? It's one of those many things we have as Christians. It's a big picture thing. So where's the little steps along the way? How do you even get going? And it feels easier to sort of push it to the side rather than engage with it. I know I have felt that many times, and so has my wife as well. It just feels overwhelming. Um, I think, Sarah, you could speak to the fact there's certain expectations that we put on ourselves as well. Yeah, so I think uh, it's easy to feel overwhelmed when we feel the weight of that. Uh, And we also uh, often have unrealistic expectations as to what discipleship looks like. Uh, Sometimes when you say that, you might think that means um, a very quiet dinner table uh, with 10 minutes of Bible reading with children who answer correctly and uh, listen carefully. Yes, you're laughing because is that anyone's reality? I mean, if it is, then you are amazing and I would love to speak to you. But that is not reality in most homes. Our children don't 
uh, necessarily uh, learn by listening just to the reading of the word or they don't sit still very well. I don't know if you have a kid that sits still, but I certainly don't. And they don't give the answers that we expect. But if we think that that is what family discipleship should look like, we can feel like we can't achieve it. I think last night at the dinner table, my eldest was actually sitting on her little little trike bike with a nice sort of like her dancing skirt and underpants on her head. That's the latest thing as well. Yeah. So to me, that's a much more realistic expectation of the way things sort of work out. Yeah. But you know, not just the unrealistic expectations that we put on ourselves as parents, I feel myself, and I'm sure I'm not alone, the fact that we can sometimes feel ill-equipped in this. Because you're given this sort of responsibility, but you know, it's exactly the same as being a parent full stop. What do you do with it? You often hear the whole idea of there's no instruction man manual that's given to you. So where do you start? You feel ill-equipped. And this is particularly true if maybe you haven't been raised in a Christian family like myself. Uh, or even if you have, the models that you sort of can go back to in your mind or when you were growing up may not be the best models. So you may be a newish Christian or someone that doesn't have a complete understanding of things yet. And on top of that, the examples that you want to go to, that we all go to, which is always our parents' examples, may not be the best or they could be really good. But quite often, the sort of hard examples to go back to. Um, I know for myself, I don't have Christian parents. so. For me, it has been learning as I go. My wife's parents have been, for me, the examples that I go to rather than my own. Mm. And it's, of course, natural to feel in this space completely inadequate. You know, the big weight of everything, this big picture thing of responsibility that you're supposed to, to do. And like, who am I as someone to actually take part in this? Who am I to actually do this? Uh, I don't feel like I understand God well enough to sort of impress that onto my children. I don't understand the Bible enough to really teach it. And if I did understand it well enough, do I really even have that level of teaching ability? Not everybody is gifted with great teaching skills. And I'm sure that a lot of us just don't feel like we have them really at all. Particularly when your daughter is riding around on a tricycle with a dancing skirt and underpants on her head. <laughs> uh, that takes a really high level of teaching abilities. But it doesn't, uh, that discouragement shouldn't stay that way, right? Because uh, the Bible encourages encourages us and says that it's not by our own ability, thankfully. It's not by uh, our own gifts or our own knowledge uh, that we can do these things. When God calls us to something um, and he has called us to disciple our children, uh, then he equips us to do it. And so uh, God has given you this role and that should encourage you uh, because he will give you the ability uh, to disciple your individual children who they are, and how they learn. Uh, it is God, ultimately, that does the saving. So while this is a huge responsibility, and we should feel the weight of that, we also need to know that it is God who will save them, ultimately, and we need to be praying for that in our kids. Uh, and we need to uh, remember that this is a partnering with God and a partnering with his people. Uh, and so we are passionate about that as uh, kids' ministry, as uh, family ministers, that you partner with us uh, to teach your children. We don't want you to feel like you're alone. And so you're partnering with God and you're partnering with us. I think it's important to remember that in Romans, Paul writes, it does, it, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That is the grace in this space. Mm -hmm. That is the space that we can rely on. We, as Sarah said, we mm -hmm. are partnering with God in this. It's God's sovereignty, his power. It's his mercy that is actually going to do the saving, but we're partnering with God in doing that. Uh, I often, in my mind, 
think like when it comes to the discipleship, the first thing I think is kind of like a school uh, situation where kids are like Sarah was describing, very ordered, they're listening, they put their hands up, there's a very sort of formal learning environment. But what's actually interesting, if you think of Jesus' example about how he taught his disciples, we get a very different picture. Yes, there were moments of sort of formal teaching, but actually Jesus had this amazing way of teaching when his disciples were listening. He modelled things, he went around stuff, he actually pointed to stuff where he was going around to to, as teaching moments, for example, he would point to a mountain and sort of describe how faith, you know, strong faith could actually move that mountain. Or he could point it to a tree to sort of point out where the leadership were falling short because their leadership was, was not producing fruit, just like this tree was producing fruit. It wasn't always this explicit formal teaching, it was actually they followed Jesus, and as they followed Jesus, they actually learnt from him, from his example and the coincidental things that sort of came along which became teaching moments, which is exactly what we can do and should do as parents. There are so many moments throughout the week, as you've seen the pictures, where these could be teaching moments, these incidental, coincidental teaching moments, which then can lead to a little bit more you know, explicit um, and, and sort of more you know, formal style teaching moments as well. So what's at stake if we aren't discipling our children? The truth is, even if you aren't, someone is. And so it's not a question of how well you do it. It's a question of, are you doing it? Because if you're not discipling your children, the world will. And that's one or the other. And so we have to remember that and feel the weight of that uh, because it's easy for us to think, that discipling can mean just bringing them to church. Uh, you saw that in the video, right? There's, there can be a temptation to say, if I bring them on a Sunday morning, Sarah and the team will disciple them. If I bring them on a Friday afternoon, then I've got it twice. If I send them to Scripture, we're covered. But that's actually not how it works, right? The, disciple, the world will have more impact and more of a say on your child's life if you aren't discipling them. A lot of, in a lot of ways, we want to say that our ultimate goal is to have resilient disciples. Resilience is one of those words in our society right now that we say our kids lack. And the last thing we want them to lack is resilience in their faith. Uh, we want their identities to be in Christ. So whose identity are they taking on? Are they taking on the identity of the world and the culture and the things that they are exposed to every day? Or are they taking on the identity of Christ, the one that we want to disciple them towards? That's the question that we have to ask. Now, our kids, uh, next slide, I think it is. Our kids have so many challenges. This is a very small list of challenges in our society at the moment, particularly for our children. There is a huge lack of identity. Uh, we went through quite a long phase, and it's still happening, where we tell our kids they can be anything, anyone they want to be. And we think that empowers them. But actually what happens is they don't know who they are. Uh, they have no uh, uh, grounding, they have no uh, structure to say, actually, this is where I fit, and this is who I am. And there's a huge lack of identity in our children and young people. That then quite often leads to a high amount of anxiety. Uh, when they don't feel a sense of grounding uh, and they don't know who they are, 
uh, they can be really highly anxious. Um, and that is a huge issue in our society and for our children. Uh, they are highly connected. Uh, we, I think kids spend a lot of time online, uh, whether it be that they have social media or whether they play gaming. Gaming online with other people makes them feel like they're connected with each other, but actually they're socially isolated. They don't know then when they come into real life situations how to uh, deal with conflict, how to uh, relate to one another, and that means that often they feel alone, even though that we feel like there's so many opportunities for them to connect. Uh, we also live in a society that is mistrusting. Um, social media adds to that, right? We watch and we hear so much of all of the bad things that people do in the world, and that leads to us mistrusting. Uh, there was a generation, right, that used to ride their bikes out on the street and that was just the normal thing. Now we see kids out there on their bikes and we think, where are their parents? We, we now distrust each other and we distrust the world and that's actually what our children are learning to do. They're learning to distrust each other. And they have ambition. We want them to uh, succeed at life. We want them to get the best grades they can. We want them to have the best job, the most money, the best house, the opportunities. And they have this ambition, but they don't really know why. Uh, there's no grounding, there's no base for them to come back to. So these are just some of the challenges facing our kids. The good news is, that's not the end. The good news is that uh, when our children have a resilient faith in Jesus, they have something to come back to. And he answers all of those things that we talked about. Um, when we foster a family atmosphere, a family rhythm and a family life that teaches them uh, where their base is, where their foundation for their life is, uh, that's when they can deal with those issues that they face. Uh, they can go back and Jesus answers all of those things, right? He gives them an identity. Their identity is a child of God. They are loved by him and cared for. When they are feeling fearful and anxious and worry, Jesus answers that. He gives them a place to come to, a place to talk to, someone to talk to always. He is the one they can trust no matter what. And when that is part of their normal rhythms and their foundations of their life, uh, they can face those challenges they go through uh, with a confidence of who they are under him. Faith in Jesus as a family and as a community uh, help keep our kids on track, um, help them to face the challenges that they come to in life. And so we want to do that with a good foundation for our individual families, but also being part of an, a bigger faith community. Uh, and when we uh, do that well, uh, our kids see what that can look like. They can see what uh, living life under Jesus might look like. I don't know if you've had the experience of something in the Bible, as characters or themes, whatever, to sort of follow your life. They pop up at church while you're reading through the week, uh, maybe a growth group. Like these things just keep popping up. I've had it a few times in my life, but I feel like as a church, we're actually kind of getting this with this generation that were, uh, you know, wandering the wilderness. That God said that because of their failure uh, and the fact that they didn't trust Him, that they would never reach the promised land. So they just did circles and circles in the desert. And actually, uh, in Deuteronomy, the passage that was read out and we're looking at today, uh, that generation has passed away. 
and it's the next generation that is about to go into the promised land. And Moses is standing before them, teaching them what God wants for them. And he's giving them things and promises that will say, if you do this, if you keep my commands and statutes, uh, and if you teach your children and make these a part of your lives, when in the land, it will go well with you which is a huge and amazing promise. But a part of that promise is that Israel needs to be teaching their children that the priorities of what God is saying for them, the way God is wanting them to structure their lives, needs to not just stay with them, but it needs to be handed down to their children so there'll be generation after generation living for God in the land that he has given to them, which I think actually presents a really interesting contrast for us today. We have what Moses is telling that generation of Israel, how they should you know, structure their lives, what they should be doing with their children and things like that, because it will go well with you. And we still get a message today of like, what will help things to go well with you, that idea of thriving. Uh, we like to make a distinction between you know, the world out there and, and us in here, but I actually think that the way culture has shaped us, that we've grown up in us, that 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 sort of promise of what will help us to go well in this life can sometimes be very hard to discern for us which is culture and which is God. Um, and you can see the contrast, we'll see the contrast now between what Moses is saying for the Israel, Israelites back then and sort of the ideas that we have floating around in our culture that is very much a part of our lives, that are constantly there and speaking to us. The first is that who is the most important person? You know, in our lives. In our culture today that we've grown up in and we're very much uh, taken in, that is actually the most important person is me. We have this concept of elective identity that actually we can sort of decide for ourselves who we are, kind of that idea of like we teach our children that you can be whoever you want to be. The only thing that's holding you back is sort of your, your lack of being able to believe in that. So we have this idea of, that we can actually choose our identity. I am a such and such. I'm going to be a such and such. Um, we discover our true selves, not from out there, but actually from within ourselves. If only I can just get away from the things that are holding me back, from what I know is true inside, then I can be the, my real self. Then I can be the best version of myself. We're also encouraged to pursue our own desires. What makes us happy? What brings us joy? Uh, you know, as so long as it doesn't hurt other people. Uh, our idea of thriving is to become our best self, whatever that is. And so in contrast to that, when we look at our passage today and when we look at uh, the story in the Old Testament of God speaking to his people, uh, he tells us that we find our identity from him. That is where we uh, find our purpose, that is where we find our joy. Uh, when we seek God and when we say the Lord is one, therefore he is number one. Uh, there is no one before him. When we do that, when we do that as a family, when we do that as individuals, uh, we say that he is where we find our hope and our purpose, uh, where we find our joy. And we will seek to be holy as God is holy. And that's what it looks like to have a family that sits with God as number one, as opposed to me as number one. Um, the video that we played beforehand, the guy at the very start is really is a statistician. He's written this really good book, Faith for Exiles, with another guy. 
And the statistics that he got, they are American statistics, and actually they were before the pandemic as well. But I think they're probably as true for here as they are over there as well. And that was all, he consulted many, many people, got a really good, really good spread of the, the culture. I just want to point out that he sort of categorizes kids that they interviewed into these four categories. The prodigal ex-Christians, these are people who have completely left the faith, do not identify as Christians anymore. Uh, we also have the nomads. These people, like, yeah, they'll say they're Christians, but they haven't really been to church for a long time and they don't really have a, a spiritual church family that they would call themselves a part of. Then we have the habitual churchgoers. Are these the ones that, yeah, they go from time to time. Uh, they would say they're a Christian, but they're not really sort of participating. They're not getting that next level, which is that resilient discipleship. And it's really interesting. You see the numbers. Nomads and hab habitual churchgoers, they never get past really a 50% chance of actually continuing on in their faith. However, this concept of resilient disciple that we're wanting to raise, we're getting into the 80s and the 90%. So there's a significant difference between these two categories and the resilient identity that we're sort of wanting to have fostered in our children. It's interesting. Um, so they uh, interviewed millions of uh, so young people between 18 and 29 that uh, grew up in church. Uh, so these are all young people who grew up in the church. Um, and this is... Uh, the result, uh, we will kind of look at it a little bit again later, um, but it's interesting to see uh, the difference between a resilient disciple uh, and our habitual churchgoers. Mm. Um, when it comes to love, there's also, you can see the contrast in what we've read in the passage and we've sort of seen the passage for Israel and for us today. For, for us, love is about respect, it's about tolerance, about affirmation and human rights. These are all concepts of how we can live and let live really, how we can function as different people, looking after our own goals and our own desires, but still sort of working together. And they sound really good, uh, but they do sort of lean towards, like, this is how we can better thrive as individuals in a society rather than actually loving each other in the way that, say, Israel would be thinking. Mm. And so, uh, in contrast to that, into the way the world tells us uh, and the culture has led us to think that love looks like, uh, God tells us that uh, the things that we need to love are God and others. Uh, when we love God, uh, we serve Him. Uh, we love through obedience to Him, through trust in Him, and through worshipping. And that um, is something that uh, we need to kind of paint a picture of within our families and within our community, within our church uh, and faith community as well. Uh, how are we showing uh, the next generation how to love God? but also how to love others as God loves. Uh, how are we showing them how to love sacrificially and how to love generously? What does that look like uh, in your home? How, what does that look like as a community? Are we being sacrificial in the way that we are caring for other people, uh, in the way that we uh, might give up things that matter or, value, or valuable to us that shows our children uh, what love looks like? Um, and so, again, that's another contrast. Who are we putting first and how are we loving? The other really big one is though, they encourage us you know, to put all their love, strength uh, and trust into one God. So when it comes to our culture, the one that we've been raised in, we're sort of very much taught that actually there's a whole choice of gods that we can choose from, the whole choice of things that we want to follow and things that we want to pursue. And it's really unclear which one thing, if any, we should be following. I call this 
the guessing game of life. I felt this when I wasn't a Christian. I remember living this and doing this all the time. There are so many options out there to choose from. And they're out there in the culture and people talk about them all the time. You think of morning TV shows, the five things that are going to improve your life. Or try this new product and this will solve this. And you feel like you're going back and forth between all the solutions that are out there. There's also the word of mouth stuff that we get from our friends and family. Oh, you know what? I've tried doing keto lately and it's been so great. It's changed my life completely. Oh, I'll try that now. So we keep <laughs> trying things back and forth, trying to find a solution and a direction and something that's going to help us get through this life better and sort of thrive through it as well. Um, we also suffer from a market of gods. When there isn't one true God, that every God that's on offer can become potentially good for us. And we're going to pick the one that's going to help us do better, the one that's going to help us thrive better. But at the same time, we don't have any loyalty to that God. So we'll swap and change as we go, just like we do with products and solutions out in life as well. Where this becomes a problem is in a family, is if we're all sort of chasing what we need to help us do, become our best selves and our best, to help us thrive through life in our own way, our families become fractured. There's nothing sort of binding us together as one thing, sort of keeping us together. So then we end up becoming individuals and our families take on individual rhythms. Mm. Whereas I was very privileged to grow up in a Christian home. Uh, and so when I look at this, I can think about how uh, our family rhythms in our home uh, pointed us to who was, was the one God. Uh, we grew up with just a general understanding that uh, we didn't drink excessively. Uh, we didn't swear. We didn't um, do, well, we did conflict well. We dealt with issues uh, in respectful ways. Uh, we, that was an understanding because it was our family culture and dynamic. Um, and it didn't need to necessarily be explicit. Because that was the culture of our home, we all understood uh, that we followed that one God together, uh, that we lived in obedience to him. That was what our family uh, rhythms looked like. We had a shared loyalty uh, because we were part of a church community together and we uh, worshipped the one God together. We all lived under that assured promise and that meant that even if, as we grew, uh, we questioned things or we doubted who God was, we always had a foundation and an understanding of what it looked like to live under our one God, even if we made choices that led us elsewhere. Um, and that uh, meant that as a family, uh, we shared in our rhythms. And so... Uh, having that foundation of a one God to follow uh, created a cohesion in our house, um, an understanding of what we as a family uh, decided that we were following. Um, and our parents set that for us. Now, I can reflect back and see that now at the time, that wasn't necessarily obvious. Um, I could feel those tensions of I'm missing out on this or missing out on that. Uh, but I ultimately had that foundation and knowledge that uh, what was right under God and what wasn't. Uh, and so that was uh, what it looked like in our home to have a uh, place and a home and a family that followed one God. So what are the results of all this? 
What are the results if you know, our families are sort of leaning more into the culture that we've sort of imbibed and we've grown up in, the one that we can't necessarily always discern is there because it's so ingrained in us. Uh, if we lean more into that, we will see families that end up following individual self-interests. Uh, your children will sort of have a more love of self than they will of anybody else. Love is then therefore also a transactional thing. How, how is what I'm doing for others going to help me in the long run? There's also no sort of linking identity for the family to sort of be under. There's no umbrella, there's no band around to sort of keep things together. There's no, we are a this or that family to sort of hold things together. And the other risk is also the children just feel more comfortable in the culture around us than within Christian culture and living under God as well. Uh, the next statistic that we have here is we sort of look at, um, in big picture, out of all of them, all added up, there are four kinds of, ex of, of kids that we've talked about and they come from families, and only 10% of them, in the end, out of all the ones that were surveyed, actually had this resilient faith and actually continued on. And they had markers about attending church at least monthly and engaging with their church um, more than just attending. They trusted firmly in the, author the authority of the Bible and are committed to Jesus personally and affirmed that he was crucified, raised, dead, and conquered sin, and they expressed a desire to, be tra to transform the broader society around them. It's an amazing image of what we want, all want our children to be. We all want our children to have these key characteristics, yet we're sort of seeing that actually only 10% are sort of coming out and finding a personal joy in following Jesus and understanding what that means and what that looks like. And isn't that a sad thing to read? Uh, only 10% of young people who have grown up in a church have a resilient faith. And this is before, uh, before COVID, before any of that. And I would say, I would think that that means the statistic is probably worse now. Um, and so this is why uh, we watched that video. It's what everyone's talking about. Why are our children falling away? Why aren't they sticking out in their faith? Uh, and that is why uh, we feel so passionate about family discipleship. We feel so passionate about saying to you that God has given you this responsibility. Uh, what do our weeks look like? Right? When we think about how do we disciple our kids, uh, it's good to step back and think, how exactly are they spending their time? Because it can be really easy for us to uh, place the blame of this um, on churches, on uh, kids' ministry, on uh, so many other things, on society, on uh, the culture, but ultimately God says that the responsibility of discipling your children is yours. Uh, and so how we take that on um, is challenging and difficult, but you need to feel the weight of it uh, because the weight of it is there. And so let's look at what an average uh, week in a child's life might be. Or do you want to read that oh, first? That's all right. All right. So, look, so we're talking at the moment about a priority shift. This is what's need, a priority shift. This is what's needed to change things around. As Sarah said, if your calendar is looking more like uh, you're hoping that other things you, like church and youth and kids men are sort of doing a good job of discipling, uh, they're not really living up to, the, the, to what your calendar should look mm. like. We need to prior, do a priority shift for ourselves. So if we look at the average week, this is sort of, I was on the, Bureau, the Australian Bureau of Statistics this week, which is a website I rarely ever go to, um, and I sort of found some of these, and this is like a very average. There are probably other things in between this that I haven't even counted, but generally speaking, we're looking at every family's kids have at least 
10 hours of screen time on top of what they would normally do at school, because screens are very much a part of school as well. There's 10 hours of input that's not from you, not from church, not from kids' ministry, that is happening each week. Of course, there's schools, which is great, but there's 30 hours of school input through the week, and then there were three around about, depending on your family, at least three extra hours of you know, out-of-school activities, which could be even more. So in total, uh, about 43 hours for the average family of non-Christian input. And then you contrast that if you're saying that uh, the primary disciple of your children is our kids' ministry um, and you bring them both on a Friday to kids or youth and to um, on a Sunday, um, that looks like potentially three hours. Uh, you could then, you could tack on a half hour of scripture, um, you could take it up to three and a half hours, uh, but when we compare uh, the input that our kids are getting um, that is not pointing them to Jesus quite often, um, compared to if you were saying this is the primary way they're being discipled. Uh, there's only so much we can do in three to three and a half hours. Um, that isn't going to have the same impact. Um, and when we leave this uh, primary discipleship to church, uh, we can't be as effective. Uh, we don't have the time, we don't have the one-on-one -on -one investment. We don't know your kids like you know your kids. Uh, we can't impact them the way that you do. We love to do it and we will forever do it, but um, we want to do that alongside you. We want to teach them alongside you and disciple them and work together. And so what we want to say then is let's have a look at our calendars. And when I say look at your calendar, I don't mean I expect you to get rid of things and come to more church events. That's not the answer. Um, ultimately, when you look at your calendar, I want you to think about a few things. I want you to look at uh, what are the things that are in your week-to-week -week, uh, life that are pointing your kids uh, towards Jesus, and what are the things in your week-to-week -week life that is cultural input into their minds and hearts. Um, that is a reflection activity for you. It's for you to think about how much input is the world having on my child? Um, now, that might be different if your children go to a Christian or a non-Christian school, right? They go to a state school versus a Christian school, they might get a little bit more input. The other thing I want you to do when you look at your calendar is to think, do I have um, intentional time that is unscheduled? Uh, one of the big things in our society, I feel like anytime you ask how someone's week is, they say busy, right? Because we fill our lives so easily. Uh, that is one of the things our culture pushes, right? Our kids need to try everything, and when they do, they need to seek to do it better and better, and that takes more time. Uh, and when we do that, uh, our society is leading our kids in a direction, and we have less time to just talk to them, to spend time with them, to reflect on the things uh, that are going on in their lives. And so when we schedule so much that we don't have uh, unscheduled time, uh, that can make it really difficult for us to have uh, that kind of conversations with our kids. And that can look like then our uh, discipleship being just tacked on to the end of the week. It's okay, I haven't had time to chat to them um, about this big thing going on in their life. I haven't really been able to chat to them about what I'm reading in the Bible or maybe point them uh, towards something um, that will help them reflect on what God is teaching them. Um, that's okay because we go to church. And that's a really easy trap to fall into. 
uh, when we know we kind of have the fallback, that's when we can start to think, it's okay, because I know they go to kids on a Friday and I know they go on a Sunday. Um, and so often filling our timetables, filling our schedules so much means we lack the, the quiet time to sit and chat to our children. And that might mean that when you look and go through your calendar together, uh, that you realise there's things you need to sacrifice. Um, that might mean that the lifestyle that you have chosen to live means you're so busy uh, and you have to work so much and so hard that you don't get time with your children. And the reality of that is uh, that then you have less time to disciple them. You have less time uh, to demonstrate to them what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. Uh, and I'm really grateful I see a lot of grandparents here. Uh, you get even less time with your grandkids. And yet, how are you using those intentional times to point them uh, to what it means to live as a follower of Jesus? Uh, I had uh, Christian grandparents growing up, and I still remember they lived in a granny flat that was in our yard. And so, really, that kind of meant we saw them less because we took it, that, you know, we took it for granted. Um, but I still remember whenever we would have a sleepover, uh, my grandpa reading the Bible every morning at breakfast. That is a memory that is so ingrained in me. And he did that every single morning. It was part of their natural rhythm and they did it whenever the, the grandkids came over, they would do that. Um, and it was a great demonstration to us. And so we need to think about what are the things we need to sacrifice to show um, in our daily rhythms, what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. Yeah, an example of sort of sacrifice from the Goodman family, when, we had a, when Olivia was first born, we made the decision that, you know, we wanted Lisa to stay at home. This is not a prescriptive thing for every family. You, you decide how things work best for you. But we decided that we wanted Lisa to be the pro, like a primary character carer all the time there while I was studying at college and now in ministry now. That was a sacrifice for us. We could have had two incomes, we could have earned a whole bunch more money, which would have been really good right now as the cost of living is raised, being raised. But that was the sacrifice that we made, that in time we may feel later on, but right now we are seeing the fruits of that sacrifice. I want to be very clear that does not I'm not saying that everyone needs to do exactly the same thing. Everyone's at different stages. But I guess the, the question you need to ask yourself is what or who is making the decisions in your family? Mm -hmm. And then maybe that could be something that you should consider sacrificing because the person who's making this should be making the decisions in your family should be God. Um, I wanted to have a quick think about Israel back then, that generation, the new generation, they're all nervous, they're about to go into the, the, the promised land, they've got to live in a certain way, and part of what God is imparting on them is that they need to teach their kids. Why is this important? Because what, what, why it's important for them is also why it's important for us, mm. is it needs to continue on. If this generation doesn't do that, then Israel is not going to succeed. They are not going to thrive as a nation. And actually, they kind of don't. Uh, they don't teach the kids very well. They get caught up in the culture and end up they have king after king who fails and lives against God and they're constantly punished by God because of that. There's this cycle that keeps on happening. When it comes to us, though, we still have this same command as God's people and as Christian parents, we need to teach our kids. Because think of the long haul, as a church here in, at DAC, if the kids, if there's only 10%, as we saw, continuing on as resilient Christians, then this congregation with just the 
growth through the generations is going to keep shrinking and it will not be a, at all a big portion of DAPTO at large. It will become smaller and smaller. God will bring more people in and we look forward to that and we, and we wait for that and we're praying for that. But as far as the families, if we're not taking this responsibility, the next generation will get smaller and smaller. I find that sad to think of, right? Because I look at the... Um, if I go over all of our programs, we probably have about 50 to 60 kids on our uh, list. Uh, that would leave us with about six, right? A six kids of all of those children growing up to be resilient disciples. Uh, that's a really sad thing to think about, um, and I don't want that. I don't that. I don't want that for my own kids, and I don't want that for any of yours. Uh, and so this is um, a challenging thing for us to think about, but it's so important and so valuable. Um, so how do you get started? Uh, because we, you know, at the beginning we said to you you have maybe in your mind what it looks like to disciple your children, um, but it doesn't always look like that. Um, and so we're going to give you a few tips today as to what that might look like. Uh, the first thing we want to say is begin with layering your rhythms. Uh, I always say this because um, one of the things that helped me get into a habit of reading my Bible every day was adding it to something I already do every day and that is my coffee, right? I can't start my morning without my coffee, um, and so when I wanted to start a really um, an important and a good habit to be in of reading my Bible, I added that to the thing I'm always going to do every day. And so I want to say the first thing you want to do uh, to add discipleship into your home and your families is to layer it with your regular rhythms. Um, if you have kids, so I have three kids who are 13, 10, and 9, and so for us, the times where we connect the best uh, is at meals and driving and bedtime. Uh, so when we sit down to have a meal, how are you using that time to chat with your children? Um, are you chatting with them about the things that are happening in the world and helping lead them towards how God might want them viewing those things? Uh, how are you using uh, meal times to chat to them about the things that are going on in their lives? Um, and maybe the things that are going on in yours. Um, if you, again, if you have primary age children or teenagers, you know that the car is the place they ask their major questions. I don't know if that's the same for everyone, but I feel like what happens is they know you can't look at them. And so when there's a huge major thing they want to chat about that's um, scary and they're too afraid to say it to your face, they will say it in the car. And so those times... That's when I find I have the most intense conversations with my daughter. Um, she chats a lot, but the car is the place where she'll ask those big questions. Uh, the car is the place where um, she will want to chat and chat and chat because she knows that I can't necessarily look her in the eye, and so we can have those hard conversations. So how are you using those conversations, those hard things going on in their lives, to point them towards... Uh, the way that God has called us to live as his people. How are we pointing them to him and saying he is the one uh, who loves you despite how hard school might be? Um, he is the one who has given you a purpose when you feel like you can't do the things that everybody else can do. Um, and bedtime. Bedtime is, I, I think for younger kids particularly, is the time where they have all their questions because they want you put off bedtime. And as tempting as that is to, um, I don't know about you, but usually by bedtime I'm done. 
Um, and so that's not when we uh, might schedule discipleship time, but um, how are you using those questions and those times when they want to chat and being like, you know what, I've got to put aside my desire to rest right now um, and use this chance to talk to my kids, uh, to read with them, to point them to God's word uh, when they uh, have worries and concerns. Fun example of the dinner time one that we had in our family just before Easter, is we put the placemats out that Sarah made that were handed out through Kids Min. Um, and my daughter Olivia instantly, oh, almost towards the end of the meal, asked, Mummy and Daddy, why did Jesus have a crown of thorns? That's an interesting question to try and answer <laughs> to a three-year-old, four-year-old now, but yeah. Um, which is sort of like leads you to this. You're going to get these questions that you may feel like you don't know how to answer in that spot because it's actually a real skill to be able to go from like, okay, I get it as an academic or a thing that I understand enough for my own self, but how do I then teach it in a way that kids will actually understand. And that is a whole other skill in itself. But don't be scared by that. See this as an opportunity for yourself to grow. You teaching your, your kids is an opportunity to actually grow yourself. When I took on my first, first leadership of a Bible study, I think I'd been a Christian for all of a year and a half. Um, I knew next to nothing. I was learning a lot. But I got to the point where I was actually in the rhythm of teaching a chapter ahead. I would spend all week learning and get excited about something that I would teach it the next week in Bible study. And I think this is a good practice for parents as well. Like you may not feel like you understand stuff, but here is a great opportunity for you to actually learn yourself. So you're sort of teaching as you are growing at the same time. I think it kind of fills in that sort of doctor, that doctor mantra, like you, you, you see it, do it, then teach it. It's kind of that rhythm a little bit, but it's very helpful as well. Um, we also want to make sure that we're modelling to our kids. Jesus modelled what it was like to be a disciple to his disciples. So I want to ask the question, like, how are you showing the value of being a follower of Jesus to your kids? Are you showing the, the value and the joy that it brings um, out and about in, you know, around DAPTO as much as you are at church? Are you showing that actually following Jesus is shaping your decisions? Are you showing that actually in moments where you need sort of guidance, that you actually turn to him in prayer rather than sort of take it on yourself and try and work it out for yourself? Mm. Are you showing the value in that? Are you showing them a joy? I know that uh, Sunday mornings can sometimes be hard to get out of the house, um, but are you leaving the house grumbling about going to church? Are you uh, grumbling as you're leaving for Bible study? Uh, do you let the stress of those things, of getting out of the house, uh, take out the joy of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, when we demonstrate to our kids that uh, actually making the hard choices, saying no to some things, can be a joy because we can find that through the one who has saved us, through Jesus. Uh, how are you modelling uh, a joyful faith? And how are you showing this, the sacrifice that comes of being a follower of Jesus to you, your kids? How are you showing that actually because we follow Jesus, we don't do certain things? Mm. Um, a classic example for a lot of families is we don't play sport on a Sunday because actually church is something that we feel like we should be a part of. It's important to meet with God's people. Are you sacrificing uh, other things throughout the week to show that actually following Jesus is more important than the other things that we're sort of told that we need to be doing as well? Mm. And keep it relatable and be reliable. Um, that is one thing I think we often miss out on. Uh, it is a relatable thing uh, when our parents find 
uh, faith hard. When we are real and we're honest with our kids about the struggles, not everything, they don't need to know every detail of everything, but they need to know that sometimes you struggle uh, to pray. Sometimes you struggle to go to Jesus first. Um, Be relatable in that way so as they grow, they know it's normal. They know it's normal to have doubts sometimes, but that you come back to God. Uh, Demonstrate that in a way that shows them um, resilience uh, through difficult things. Um, And be reliable, be a place where they know they can come um, to ask their questions when they are doubting and when they are struggling. Be the place they come to uh, to ask uh, what God would want them to do in this situation or circumstance. The other thing is to be teaching your kids. So these are the basic things, that what we would call the core stuff that we do at our discipleship triangle. Teach your kids these things. Um, just going through all the really quickly, teach them to pray. We, we have a bit of a philosophy that Lisa and I have stumbled into as we try to guess our way through discipling our kids that actually sometimes you've got to start something early that they're not ready for but they'll grow into. So we've been praying with our kids really early and now we're at a point where actually Olivia will sort of pray and sometimes when Abigail's not protesting praying, she'll also pray as well. <laughs> um, we also started by you know, make, putting that thing in place when it came to Bible reading. We have these great little books which I'll we'll put on a list at some point, but they're a good starting point. So there's always this night bedtime routine where we'll read a Bible book as well. And they've sort of grown into that and we're actually going into sort of bigger books uh, the other thing as well is, you know, don't be afraid to use culture as a way of teaching your kids mm. as well. Movies and stuff aren't bad. Things out there aren't necessarily bad. They're a great opportunity to say, actually, as Christians, how do we see this? Or where do we see God in that? And it's a way of teaching the difference between uh, what Christian you know, values are and what the world's and culture's values are. The hardest thing that the Goodmans are struggling with at the moment is how do we teach rest to our kids? We're very much go, go, go sort of family. Um, And actually going through that Sabbath time in land, it was really a point of us to think like, wow, we should actually, instead of just sort of collapsing on the couch on one day a week to sort of recover from everything, we should actually be resting by sort of being refilled by God Mm -hmm. as well. So how do you teach your kids that? Uh, And how do we encourage our kids? Uh, We want to encourage them to uh, connect with you Um, and to be accountable. Uh, When we demonstrate this to them, when we say we are a place where you can connect to, um, our kids know they have somewhere to come uh, and feel encouraged in their faith. Uh, You need to be the place that they go to for that. Um, And you also want to keep them accountable. If we say that our family uh, live in the way that puts God as number one, uh, who loves others and loves God, and who says we have one God, then we need to be uh, keeping our kids accountable to that. Uh, When they live in our household, that's how we choose to live. And that's a hard thing to do, um, but it's so important. Uh, We're the ones who are going to keep them accountable to living as a family under God. Um, This is the beginning. This is the intro to our three-week series, but it's been a lot of stuff to sort of take in, but there's a lot of stuff to consider at the same time. We're really, at least Sarah and I are really keen on sort of questions that you may have in case that we can maybe do something later on the year or next year to sort of kind of work through some of those questions as well. So there's a QR code um, which will be on after the service the whole time so you can scan it, put your questions there. We really want to know. We'd love to know like what parts do you need help with. But I think quite simply the goal of discipling kids, we can a really simple way of looking at it. There's a great passage in Matthew 19 where the children run to Jesus and his disciples are like, go away. He's like, no, please come. 
Um, the goal is to bring children to Jesus uh, and not hinder them from coming to him as well. I think it's a really good, simple way to start thinking about it right now. Um, I'm going to pray now, and then the band will come up. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, this opportunity to reflect on being not just disciples of you, but being disciple makers of our children. We pray that as we do that, that you will be with us, giving us wisdom and strength as we consider this, and help us to change our lives and our priorities so that we can reflect your goodness. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.